The following recording may contain explicit language. I can't get more explicit than may. Let's just say it may. It's Thursday, September 19th, 2019. From Slate, it's the gist. I'm Mike Pasca. How often does that happen? Once a month. Let's all go to the movies. Let's all go to the movies. Let's all go to the movies and find ourselves at a crossroads. Well, when isn't anything at a crossroads? Everything's at a crossroads. Except maybe the idea of crossroads. First you have pavement, then you have stop signs, then you have traffic lights. What's new with crossroads? Nothing's new. They're good. Where was I? Ah, yes. In the middle, or actually the tail end, approaching the tail end, the penultimate day of Comedy Week. We've done stand-up, improv, podcasting, and now we're on to movie comedy. The silver screen. Well, up until the moment the images are projected on it, and then they take the color of said images. Today on the show, we have a film critic from Vanity Fair, Kay Austin Collins. We have two great screenwriters, Dana Fox and John August, and we're going to all discuss the medium that they are experts in and where we're going We won't need any roads. And that line is from a comedy movie. You know, they're not making them like that anymore. Maybe they are. It's just that the they has changed. You know what I mean? If you don't, listen, because we're going to discuss. I have in front of me the list of top films by decade. So starting with the 70s, you have number four, The Sting, eight, Smokey and the Bandit, nine, Animal House, and 10, Blazing Saddles, the top grossing films of the 70s. The top grossing films of the 80s include six, Ghostbusters, seven, Beverly Hills Cop, eight, Back to the Future. You want to go 12 and 13, Tootsie and Crocodile, Dundee, I Won't Stop You. Top films of the 90s, five, Forrest Gump, Eight Home Alone, Nine Men in Black, 13 Mrs. Doubtfire. And then we get to this millennium. I don't know. Passion of the Christ was number 10 (laughs) in the in 2004. But there literally has not been a straight comedy that's not either a comic book movie or an animated movie to hit the top 20 films of either the aughts or whatever we're living in now. Why? Business and box office are a big reason, but I think film comedy might be changing. Doesn't matter what I think. It matters what my august panel thinks. And in this case, I mean this literally because we're joined by the host of the Script Notes podcast, John August, whose screenwriting credits include Aladdin, the latest live action one, bunch of other Tim Burton movies, Big Fish, Charlie's Angels, Charlie and the Chocolate Factory, other non-Charlie entities. We're also joined by Kay Austin Collins, who is a film critic for Vanity Fair, and he also hosts a podcast with Dana Stevens on Slate called Flashback. And finally, I'm joined by Dana Fox, who is a screenwriter best known as the writer of The Wedding Date, What Happens in Vegas, and the television comedy series Ben and Kate. Dana Fox had a great life until a couple years ago when Dana Perino was hired by Fox, and now she is all but ungoogleable. <laughs> hello, guys. Hello, Dana. Hello, John. <laughs> hello, Cam. Thanks for coming on. It's a pleasure to be here, Mike. Thank you so much for having us. Hi, everyone. So it is, I will blow the whistle on myself by saying you cannot judge the state of comedy just by the state of the box office. Yet, I think it does tell us something. John, do you agree? Well, you were defining these movies as being straight comedies. And I I just don't know that straight comedy means the same thing it did in the 90s, the 80s, the 70s. You know, you were 
throwing out all the Marvel movies, but like those are very funny movies uh, and they're written much more like comedies than sometimes I think we give them credit for. Absolutely. I think Thor Ragnarok's a comedy. I think the Ant-Man movies are comedies, but I would say, who cares about quibbling over taxonomy? But if there was a total rewrite of those movies and they said, you know what? The comedy isn't working. Let's strip it away. Let's make this a straight action movie. They'd still get made. You can't say the same thing about Mrs. Doubtfire, although we've seen the trailers with it as a, uh, a, a horror movie. Yeah, absolutely. But I, I, I do think the comedy in those movies is an essential part of why the Marvel movies have been so successful is that, you know, Spider-Man is largely a comedy that, you know, where he does have superpowers. Deadpool is a comedy that has some big stunts in it. So I, I think they are still making comedies. It's just they're not straight comedies. The whole premise is not a comedic premise. It's just uh, characters in an action movie with a lot of jokes and punchlines and, and you know, setups that normally comedy writers would be doing? A lot of the common wisdom of the um, that I was told whenever I was trying to make original comedies about things I cared about was that they don't travel well overseas. That was sort of a big thing. And I think right around that time was when the international box office started to mean as much as the domestic ones. There was a time period where you were based, so, you know, you're sort of judged solely on your, your U.S. box office. And I remember at the time, one of the many weird movies I've done, um, What Happens in Vegas, was uh, made $80 million in the U.S. and 220 worldwide. And everyone was, like, throwing me my own funeral. Like, they felt so bad for me for that box office. And that was considered a huge failure. And if that happened now, you know, people would lose their minds and say I was a genius and everything's amazing. So it was right around that time that things pivoted and people started to, I think, actually go after that international box office in the same way that they cared about the U.S. one. And comedy, you know, is so dialogue-specific. It's so specific to, you know, sometimes making jokes are just so specific to one culture, you know. And I watch, you know, you watch a German comedy, and you're like, whoa, this is a, what's happening? What are these people doing? You know, or French comedy. And you're like, why is everyone acting so crazy? Who is Jerry Lewis? So I think that was always a common wisdom I was given, was like, don't, was like, they don't travel well, you know. I am always ye- yelling, who is Jerry Lewis at every French movie, <laughs> even without Jerry Lewis in it. Yeah. Jacques Tati. That's exactly Playtime. right. You, yeah. have to yell it, you have to yell it out no matter what is happening in the movie, because you know <laughs> that it all stems from Jerry Lewis. Like every weird thing that is happening is coming from Jerry Lewis. Even Mr. Bean comes from Jerry Lewis in some way, even though he was in London. <laughs> Do comedies rely more on the identifiable comedic star who always plays a variation of the self? Yeah, I mean, I, I think that's a I think that's an interesting question because I think that honestly is a question of what exact month are you in in the studio's crisis of trying to figure existential crisis. Honestly, it's like it depend. So one month they'll tell me it has to be the name thing because the name is what tells the thing, and the next month they're like, we want to break all new people that no one's ever heard of, and the next month they say. You know, we can't get the movie made unless it's so and so. And it, just, I sort of feel like you, you can't, you can't go on that roller coaster ride with them. You have to actually just kind of do what excites you as not only a creator or someone who wants to make content that you're excited about, but rather as a person who watches things, and just say to yourself, like, well, what do I want to see? What am, you know, what am I going to do? Uh, I think that the problem with those people as of now is that they aren't consistently hitting the way that they were before. It used to be that there were like 10 people who were a sure thing in comedy. And it was like, if you could get one of those, you've got your movie made, no questions asked. 
number one, those people haven't consistently hit over and over again. And number two, their fees drive the budgets up so high that that sort of prices them out of what people are willing to spend making those movies nowadays. You know, back when I made Couples Retreat, it was like, you know, I think that the budget of that movie was like $73 million. And like, if you told someone now that you wanted to make a comedy with a budget of $73 million, they would just be like, you've lost your mind. And they would, they would tell you to do what John is actually sort of saying, which is then make it an action movie, make it a Marvel movie, make it, make it a movie that can sustain that budget and turn it into an event at theaters. The common wisdom changes all the time. Everything changes is changing all the time. And I think it's hugely being changed by television right now because streaming services have created this new sense of like, well, you don't actually have to leave your house to see these movies. And so I think that, you know, that obsession with having your movie come out in theaters is people just have to let go of it because I don't know that it is a thing in the same way that it was a thing before for comedy. I think people are, we're training a whole new generation of people to expect to be sitting on their couch and to have not paid much money, you know, to have paid a monthly fee a million years ago on their credit card that they forgot about. So they think what they're watching is free. And that's their expectation is that they're going to get it for free. Well, maybe, so does this mean, Cam, that you're the only person in America who, <laughs> for whom there is a distinction between that which is on Netflix and that which is in the theater because Vanity Fair assigns you to the things <laughs> in the theater? Um, I mean, not really, partially because of people like Adam Sandler on, on Netflix who has this, I mean, it's like a six-movie deal, right? That he's yeah. almost all the way through that are, by all accounts, popular to the extent that we, you know, to the extent that anyone really knows that Netflix is numbers. Um, I mean, to the extent that you believe their numbers, the what was the one he did with Jennifer Aniston? Mur- murder mystery. Murder mystery. Murder mystery yeah. Was I- seen by seventy million people. Yeah. Making it a half a <laughs> billion dollar. So that yeah. would be on my list if yeah. you extrapolate average ticket cost for that. I don't know if I believe that. Yeah. And I don't know if you can do that because there's lower barrier to entry. Who knows? But that's something. That that is something. I mean, I think I think all those Adam Sandler movies being on Netflix is a big thing. As I recall, when he made that deal, all of his past movies also suddenly reappeared, including things that people didn't really go see, like The Cobbler, to the extent that like people have still seen that. Like it's it's available in a way that yeah, I do think that going to the movies for comedy in particular feels a little bit antiquated. Unless you're doing something like a Marvel movie. I mean part of the reason that I really love people like Peyton Reed working with Marvel is because he has like intricate CGI heavy visual comedy that I don't know if it wasn't Ant Man, I don't know that people would fund that. Um, you know, in the same in the same way. So I like I value that, but I think also people went to see blockers. Um, for example, that did fairly well, but things like Booksmart didn't do as well. Yeah. Um, so it's really hard. I mean, I think I think there's still a lot to be said for the movie star driven comedy. I there's a thing, such a thing as like a Melissa McCarthy movie, McCarthy. Mm-hmm. And I, I'm always going to see a Melissa McCarthy movie. Um, she's one of those stars. That she's was she's one of the, about, she's like a, a fairly dependable star. But yeah. yeah, not not in the way that I think people really really mean when they say movie star, because I just think that people like box office star, because I think that people have sort of shifted in some ways. The only movie I saw in theaters twice last year was Crazy Rich Asians. And I wanted to see it in the theater a second time because it was just you know, visually glorious. It was really funny and it was great to see it with an audience, but it was also, it was a, a big, expensive looking movie in a world I'd never seen before. And I just loved it sort of being in that place. And so I think there will always be a, you know room for these two hour blocks of entertainment that are great to see on a big screen with an audience where you can all laugh together. Um, but that doesn't have to be every movie. And so some movies that where you sort of like lower the 
sort of barrier to entry where people can just watch it at home and watch it that first weekend at home. That's that's right. There's a comedy I'm talking about doing right now that I would do for Netflix. And part of the reason why we would want to do it for Netflix is that it's kind of a hard ask to get people into the theater on a Friday night to see this specific mm-hmm. movie. But I, I feel like at home, yeah, they would totally be game for it. There's just, it's less of a risk because you're not having to go to the theater and get a babysitter and do all that other work. That's just, that's the barrier you're up against whenever you're talking about a big screen comedy versus a small screen comedy. And I think the thing John is talking about with that communal experience, you know, it is, it is, I sort of mourn the loss of it. You know, this weekend we all went out to see um, the amazing movie Hustlers by the best human that lives on Earth, Lillian Scafaria. And there was this huge group of us there, but also it was just so amazing being in a room with a bunch of strangers who are clapping, who are laughing, who you feel their energy. And and I actually think, I know this is going to sound insane, but I actually think because I spent um, summers living in Virginia with like normal human beings who aren't in the film business um, in like normal communities where people do have to get babysitters and do have to do all that stuff. But I actually think that the addition of a lot of these like experience theaters where people can go out and like have a bite to eat and drink while they're watching things does sort of help comedy. Hopefully people still actually want to leave their houses to have those experiences and connect and like put their phones away for five seconds. Uh, I think Hustlers though is a great example because do you call that a comedy or not a comedy? Because it's a Scorsese movie, but that's really funny. And like there's yeah. there's sequences like Lorreen knows exactly what she's doing and there are really hilarious sequences. They're trying to figure out how to cook the drugs in their kitchen. It's really funny um, in ways that, you know, I don't think you would have made that same movie the same way 10 years ago. I think we're just sophisticated in a way that we are, are able to take our drama and our comedy at the same time. Succession on TV is another great totally. example of that. Like a, That's not really a comedy, but it's written you know, with jokes and punchlines that are fantastic, as, as good as any comedy 10 years ago would have, would have delivered. So we're at this weird place where it can be two things at once, and we're comfortable embracing that. The other thing that I, I keep asking friends of mine who are like on the executive side, because I've always believed that you should not try to, and I think John and Craig talked beautifully about this on their podcast, like never try to give the business what you think the business wants, like write something that you actually care about that means something to you for a specific reason. Don't like chase some weird trends that you think is a thing. One of the things that one of my very high-level executive friends said to me was, we are interested in things that are a perspective that is something you haven't really seen before. Hmm. And so um, I think that's why people, I think that's why movies like Crazy Rich Asians kind of blew the doors off that and said, not only, you know, can you show that perspective, but that you don't have to worry about whether it's universal or not. You can actually just go after the audience and like, fingers crossed, it gets universal and people watch it the way that that became a thing. But I know that studios are actually interested in like real point of view stuff. Like that's why Get Out was so exciting when you watched it. Cause you were like, I've never seen that. That's crazy. I've never seen that before. It's funny. It's scary. It's a social commentary. It's all these other things. So I think, Honestly, it's like the fresh point of view, the fresh perspective on the world. Yes, it's hard to do because the minute you do it, the studio is like, okay, we wanted to buy that, but now we want to make it like other successful things we feel like we've seen before so that we can feel safe. But if you can push it through, um, you know, I think, that, I think that is one of the things that people are actually interested in buying right now. Thank you for saying that Get Out is funny because every time I try to say that to people, they get weird. Oh, <laughs> I'm like, I'm it black. I thought funny. I was freaking hilarious. It's hilarious. It's a hilarious oh, movie. So it's a hilarious it's, movie. It's a hilarious movie. 
I mean, it was weird. It was, but you know, to some of these points, when at the Golden Globes that was up for for comedy, um, people got weird about that. As I recall, even Jordan Beale sort of, I think he was joking, but but did tweet about you know it, it's not a comedy, but it 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 is, it is, and yeah, and and horror movies. So it's so interesting. So what I'm getting here, and I I want to ask about the implications of this is that comedy in films, despite my list, did not disappear. In fact, it had the most. Uh, adaptive behavior. It embedded itself in all these other genres. That is the way to survive. Uh, is anything lost at any cost, do you think? First of all, I just want to take a pause and say how smart that was, though. I love oh. that comment. I n- I've never thought of it like that, that it's like comedy is like this weird animal that fell to the bottom of a cave that's super deep on one of those like blue planet shows. And it's like, I got to figure this shit out. I can't <laughs> see anything. I got I to gotta figure out how not to die. Um, I've never thought of it that way. I love that, that it's like an adaptive, organic living thing that sort of had to figure out how to survive. But go ahead, John, I'm going to say the smarter thing. Uh, I agree. I think what Mike, how Mike phrased it is really smart. Here's what happened. I think whenever we're talking with people, whenever we're communicating with people, one of the ways we sort of get our point across is just to to put some comedy in there, to make it clear like that we're having a connection, we're having a moment here. And that's what comedy is. So whenever two characters are talking, it's likely there's going to be some comedy in there. And so we're going to find ways to to thread that through our dramas, through everything we're doing, so that, you know, it, that the point gets across. So, yes, we still make some really serious movies that have no jokes in them at all and no sort of funny moments, but that's sort of not life. I mean, life has funny stuff that happens even in these darkest times. I mean, we are, you know, three years now, we've been living in sort of the darkest period of of my life in terms of our national politics, um, but comedy didn't die. And I think we were all really worried that like it wouldn't, wasn't going to be okay to be funny at all anymore. And that didn't come to pass. Like we recognize that we, you know, have to find what's funny in the situations at all times. I wanted to, I just wanted to follow up on one uh, strain of the conversation, which is we were talking about how so many of the films that would be released uh, in theaters a decade ago and now on Netflix. Is there no difference, not just in the communal nature, but I think I've heard you and Craig, uh, your co-host on Script Notes, John, talking about this, that there are differences. There have to be editing beats and reaction shots where it does change a bit just by the very dint of it being uh, at home and on Netflix. Absolutely. So, I mean, Things play differently on a big screen than on a small screen. How you're looking, how you're responding to things, whether there is an audience there laughing with you or you're watching at home, you are always mindful of that. And so as you know, Dan and I are sitting in the editing room with the directors and with editors, like trying to see, like, oh, is this moment funny? We can think we have a good idea, but the reason why we do those test screenings is to see, like, oh, that didn't play at all. That joke didn't work at all. You do there is you know, you're, you're fundamentally writing for an audience. And so you might have, you might go into it with intentions. This is what you're trying to do. This is why this moment is funny. But ultimately, the audience is going to tell you whether that moment is funny or not. And that's a different thing than is this moment dramatic or not dramatic. There's no, you know, you don't get, you know, you don't, don't get to hear the crying. You don't get to hear the like, oh, that was really touching. You can only hear the laughter. And so if you're not hearing laughter where you're expecting laughter, then you've got to figure out what's going on. It could be the line you wrote, but it could be the reaction shot. It could just be the timing, the pacing. It could be the joke three ago that was too similar that just is not working. So that's the the craft part of comedy writing, which is different than I think a lot of other writing that we do. It's very hard to create a comedy in a vacuum without a test audience. I mean, like that, that's, 
that's something that has been difficult for me. I'm, I'm making a new TV show for Apple and um, just the, 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 they're very secretive and they're trying to keep everything under wraps. And so there are no screenings. And I'm at the point in the process where by now I would have had four weird test screenings in like Burbank, AMC, whatever. And I'd know all the answers and I would be making all the changes and know all the answers, but I don't have that. Um, so I've felt a little bit like, fuck, okay, here we go. I got to like figure out where I actually think the laugh is and where the exact rhythm of this thing is and use all of my weird institutional knowledge I have from every weird test screening I've ever been to, to try to like imagine what is working and what's not working. And it's been, it's been really weird for me, honestly. Um, I don't really understand how you do comedy without checking it through with, as John is saying, your test audience and kind of figuring out when it's working and when it's not working. Things I've learned through test audiences Apparently, a lot of men, maybe straight men, I don't know, um, can't laugh if there's also nudity. Like, their brains literally, <laughs> just, like, if they see boobs, their ability to laugh just, like, like, they can't stop because their brains just go boobs. And, like, so they can't go to, the, and it's, like, serious boobs. Um, so they can't <laughs> laugh when they see boobs. That's sort of an interesting thing to me. And also, um, America, I guess, because I didn't do a test screening in Europe, but America is not a fan of characters who cheat. And if you expect the audience to forgive that cheating character at the end of the movie, you got to take the cheating out of the beginning of the movie. And it doesn't even matter what gender it is. It doesn't matter. Like, obviously, no, you can't have the woman cheat and be expected to be not burned at the stake by the end of the movie. But in the movie I did, there was a man who cheated at the beginning. And like the audience, like no matter what happened, could not forgive his character and root for the relationship to get back together afterwards. But that was kind of interesting. Okay, now here's a supposition, and it's just that, but tell me if there's accuracy to it. I have sensed, not even during my lifetime, but even before, that one major source of comedy uh, in the movies, dialogue-based funny lines, maybe funny rat-tat-tat lines from screwball comedies and bringing up baby and, um, and, oh, and, wow. and, right, and those kind of movies in the 50s. We very much moved away toward, from that towards the big, huge comic set pieces. But again, I could be reading this wrong. John, you read a lot of scripts and write a lot of scripts, and so do you, Dana. Yeah, I think there's something to what you're saying. And I mean, again, I've, I'm so glad we were able to bring it back to Jerry Lewis because I was really hoping we could. <laughs> but I think there's something to that, which is I was always told when I was working on my comedies that you know, you have to have these big physical set pieces because that does play overseas. That is funny to everyone everywhere because it doesn't require an understanding of specific language. You know, if you think about like a, the way that Judd Apatow movie, um, Judd Apatow movie uses language, it's so specific that if you tried to translate it into a foreign language, it might not, it might not play, but somebody, you know, smashing someone in the face with a pie is like definitely funny wherever you are. So John, what do you think about that? We definitely sort of went through that period where we had all those really high concept comedies, sort of the Jim Carrey, like liar, liar comedies, the things where like there was a big physical conceit where like there were big opportunities for physical comedy. Um, our comedies we make now, we still have some of those beats. We still have some sort of bigger moments, but I think we are kind of getting back to a little bit more of that rat-a-tat-tat. So either the dialogue is naturalistic or it's very joke dense and everything's a little bit optimized. I mean, you know, Seth Rogen comedy will be that same kind of optimization of things. And so, you know, it does swing back and forth. It's just whatever's realistic inside the world of the movie you've created. And you basically have, you know, two minutes at the start of your movie to sort of set the rules for like, okay, 
characters in this movie are going to talk a certain way, and these are the kinds of things, this is how much we're bending the rules of gravity and physics in, in this movie. And once you establish that, your audience will go with you. It's, it's only if you sort of break the, that promise that you're going to have a problem. So, John, are these the sort of issues, just the stuff that a podcaster outside of the industry thinks of when you sit down with your fellow professionals? Are you talking about things like that? What we talk about a lot over lunch is, is like, what is a movie anymore? Because it used to be really clear, like a movie was a thing you saw on a big screen. And it was about right. two hours long. Yeah. And now it's just not so clear what what it is. And so- yeah. We sort 40, of have 45 idea. TikToks together? That's what it is. It's stream, stream, them all, stream them all together as a piece. So I, I think Dana and I are mostly writing things that are around two hours long. They follow one character's journey you know, through the course of, of a story. Um, and we're calling that a movie. But if you look at like a season of Fleabag, it's almost the same thing. Mm, and so right. it, mm-hmm. the, the and if you look at and to start interrupt and if you look at Infinity War plus whatever the, uh, the other ones in that you know yeah. just portion of the triad were called, it's also not that. No, right. I mean, you can look at the Marvel universe as being just like a giant TV series where every episode cost three hundred million dollars and took a year to make. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, and so we're at this really weird transition point. And so it can be sort of an esoteric conversation, like, "Oh, what is a comedy?" But it weirdly for for me and for Dana and for other screenwriters, it's a f- sort of fundamental existential question because we are paid to write specific things, and um, if we are writing something for for if I'm writing a movie for Disney, like Aladdin, I get paid a certain way, and there's a certain expectation of how that all is going to work. But if I write this exact same movie for Disney Plus, I'm paid very differently, and the structures behind that are all different. And so mm. that's a weird thing that we're going to be heading into in the next five, ten years is figuring out what even is a movie or a TV show. Kind of what are we writing for? What is this screen? And, and what is the expectation of how someone is going to watch this thing? So let's say it is changing, but how? And this is exactly what I want to get at with this conversation about, about comedic movies. Um, I, I guess it's sort of like what uh, the boundary between like what is our expectation as an audience for how much entertainment we're supposed to be sitting down to get, you know, you know. What what is the beginning and end of this story? You know, are we expecting a prequel or a sequel to this thing that was before? If we're remaking all these Disney movies, how faithful do we have to be to the original thing? You know, that sense of you know where are the outside edges of this piece of entertainment are just very different. I think the only thing I know the stable definition of right now is sitcom. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I know what a sitcom is. Right. I can't tell you right. what a, a movie is changing and, and TV is changing and so many short films. Oh, yeah. How many cameras pilots. does a sitcom have? Depends. Yeah. So, <laughs> <laughs> so but, but even still, I, I, I know what a sitcom is. And, and I feel like that still has a lot of kind of tactile value because when you hear about Netflix acquiring these older TV shows for tons of money, it's sitcoms. Right. These things I, I understand, but then beyond that, I mean, what is a movie? I I don't know, it's changing a lot. I mean, Steven Soderbergh makes movies on iPhones now, so everything's changing, and I think that's a good thing, but but it does make a lot of these other conversations really slippery, even things like rom-com, it, it, I et think cetera. you're absolutely right, and I think, but I think that the cool, the weirdly freeing thing for me about it has been that I have stopped chasing it so I'm now doing things that actually like feel good to me. Like, so I say to myself, like I have to care 
Um, I have to feel something. I have to care. I have to want this so badly because A, it's going to be so fucking hard. It'll be unbelievable. And, you know, B, no one may ever see it. And instead of being paralyzed with fear about that, I've chosen to feel really freed up by it. The movies that you cited at the start, which were big hits, well, those were big hits to a very mass audience. And the expectation is like a comedy had Mm -hmm. to play to a really broad audience. These comedies we're talking about don't have to play to a really broad audience. So, you know, a great show like Pen15, it can be so specific and so niche and you like, only certain people are going to find it funny or get it, but those people are going to find it hilariously funny. Um, and that is a good thing about where we're at right now, is that you can make something that's like genius and brilliant like that and not have the expectation that it has to make $100 million at the box office. It, it can be its own unique thing. So that is the good thing about where we're at right now in 2019. John August is the screenwriter behind uh, many a Tim Burton movie, several other credits, listen to his Script Notes podcast. It is the gold standard. I feel like that's almost a clamor, a cliche. Dana Fox is a screenwriter behind Couples Retreat, What Happens in Vegas, and apparently some new iPhone 11 Pro Max type content. And <laughs> Kay Austin Collins is the film critic for Vanity Fair. His podcast is on Slate. It's called Flashback. He co-hosts with Dana Stevens. Guys, thank you all so very much. A pleasure. So great to be here. Thanks, guys. Thanks. And that's it for today's show. Daniel Schrader produced the gist. He has long argued that In the Name of the Father was a comedy. Then he realized someone had switched the VHS label with Daddy Daycare. The gist. If it bends, it's funny. If it breaks, it's not funny. But if it breaks and the shards go flying and they stab a mounted policeman's horse and the horse takes down the street, cut to a mugging in a nearby alley, cut to the police horse stopping short, throwing the policeman rider, mugger, dialogue to victim, the police aren't going to fly in and save the day. Boom! At that moment, the flying policeman crashes into the mugger who is disarmed. No, you're right. It's still not funny. Oomperu, depru, dupru, and thanks for listening.